Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Fritjof, how are you doing today? All right, very well. Thank you for having me on your show. Look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I know it's it's quite beautiful outside today in Berkeley, so you're, you're missing it to be inside with me, which I really appreciate. Um, well, Fritjof, do you mind giving us kind of a brief bio and some of the big themes uh, you're interested in? Uh, yes, actually, um, I mean, I can start in my childhood, but I will, I will make it uh, short. So uh, I'm Austrian by birth. And I grew up in Austria uh, with a, a mother who, is, uh, who was a poet. And my father was a lawyer, but uh, also an amateur philosophy, philosopher. He had quite a large library of philosophical books and loved to talk about philosophy. And uh, I grew up uh, together with my brother, who is a filmmaker. And I, I grew up in Innsbruck in the Austrian Alps, very close to Italy. And we spent many of our summer vacations in Italy where I got introduced to the Italian Renaissance and the Italian Baroque art as a small child. So my childhood was really dominated by, you know, discussions of, uh, you know, art and philosophy. I should also mention that before that, um, uh, we moved to Innsbruck when I was uh, 13 years old. And the first 12 years of my life, I grew up on a farm. And I think this is significant because I had a very direct experience of nature for, for all of my early childhood. And so, and, and the experience of nature continued in the Alps where I, I, I became a good skier and loved, you know, mountaineering and skiing. So I've been close to nature, you know, my whole life. Then uh, if we move on to high school, I had a very influential mathematics teacher there, a young guy fresh out from university who was really excited about mathematics and kindled in some of us students who were gifted for math, an interest in, you know, abstract thinking, problem solving, and so on. And so when I finished high school, I wanted to study mathematics, but then switched to physics. And interestingly also, because my first math teacher at university was very bad, you know, very boring. <laughs> I can't remember his name now. But the physics teacher was very exciting. So again, you know, I was influenced by teachers and then, you know, got a PhD in theoretical physics at the University of Vienna. And in my student years, the decisive event was uh, the reading of a book 
uh, by Werner Heisenberg, uh, who was one of the founders of uh, atomic physics, of quantum physics. And the book is called Physics and Philosophy. It has become a classic since. I read it shortly after it was published in the late 1950s. And in this book, Heisenberg describes the conceptual struggles of a handful of physicists with a new and totally unexpected reality, the reality of atomic and subatomic phenomena. And he describes very vividly how they were challenged to change their basic concepts, their language, their whole way of thinking. And this book, uh, looking back on it now, has uh, really shaped uh, the whole trajectory of my career, both as a scientist and, and as a writer. So those were some of the key influences in my you know, childhood and youth. Gotcha, gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of your work seems to span kind of physics, and then, you know, you've got the humanities and you've got art and you've got, uh, you know, in human experience like qualia. Um, I, I guess I guess my question is, is how did you was reading Heisenberg's book the first place where you kind of put that together? Or do you think you were just kind of uniquely situated, you know, having grown up on a farm? Yeah. Um, your your well, father was a philosopher and your mother was a, um, a poet. Yeah, good question. Well, Heisenberg's book was not the first but I put the two together, well, just a few years after reading the book for the first time. And that was, now we are in the 1960s, which was sort of the formative period of my life uh, in, in terms of my lifestyle and my values. And this was a, a decade uh, of a great questioning, questioning of the sort of... Uh, a materialistic lifestyle, the lack of spirituality, but also questioning of authority in the civil rights movement, the student movements, the feminist movement, uh, you know, various movements in, in psychology and psychotherapy, the, the so-called Prague Spring, in which the Czechs uh, questioned the authority of the Soviet communist regime. This was uh, under Dubček. So this was a very heady period. And uh, it, it involved uh, two kinds of expansion of consciousness, the social consciousness that I just described, but also the what, what psychologists began to call transpersonal consciousness, that is the expansion into the spiritual realm. There was a great interest in Eastern philosophy. Uh, in, in the early 60s, I began to read Eastern texts like the Bhagavad Gita, which is sort of the, the Hindu Bible. I read books about Buddhism, about Taoism. And interestingly, uh, because you mentioned that, my access to Eastern philosophy was through the arts. Actually, my mother gave me a book by the uh, poet Lawrence, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, in, who, who just died recently in San Francisco. And this is one of his most famous books called The Coney Island of the Mind. And he was part of that 
so-called beat generation of poets in the 1950s who were very interested in Buddhism. And, and so I became uh, interested in Eastern philosophy through poetry and art, also through the visual arts, you know, these beautiful Indian sculptures and paintings. And I, I looked at books. I, I didn't go to India at that time, but I looked at gorgeous books of Indian art. So through Indian art, through the Beat Generation, I became interested in reading about Eastern philosophies. And almost immediately, I saw these parallels. And, uh, you know, it took me a few more years to get ready to write about them. But my first book, The Tao of Physics, was published in 1975, where I analyzed these parallels in detail. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I want to talk about that book in just a second. But do you think there's you know, I think your career is very is very notable because when I look at what happened in the 60s and I wasn't around then, but yeah. I, I, I see this period of tremendous social change. You know, we landed on the moon and and three weeks later, Woodstock happened. And yeah. I think this is very notable because, you know, it's kind of like the peak of human achieve, technological achievement in the real world. And then it's kind of like this inward facing turn. Um yeah, think- also, you know, also in 1968, there was the, the black protest at the Olympic Games in Mexico. And I actually, with my friends, we didn't watch the moon landing, you know, we oh, really? it because of our political stance. So you're right that all there was a very heady period that all came together at that time. That That's very interesting. What's your sense of, and this is, you know, why why questions are often overdetermined. So this may be difficult to answer, but but what is what's your sense of this kind of this turn from you know the physical world we're doing things in the material world, uh, you know the moon landing. I think of all the technological advances from World War II to you know 1970, and right. then this like inward facing. You know, we're going to think about the self. We're going to think about you know art and and literature more, and and, and I guess look inward kind of. I think the Eastern mysticism is kind of part of that. Do you have any sense of why, like what caused this shift? Were people just tired? Were they? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think it's extremely difficult to ask why. I mean, it's not difficult to ask, but it's, but it's hard to answer the question. Why did certain cultural events happen? Because, you know, the world is so, interconnected, so nonlinear now, of course, much more so than in in the 1960s or or 70s. But uh, I would say that there was a great sort of awakening and a great sense of uh, questioning of revolting in the 1960s that went around the world. You had student movements in the United States and in Europe. You, you had, uh, you know, human rights movements, you had the same protest in the arts. And I should say that, you know, uh, I hope later on we'll talk about my latest book, which, uh, which is called Patterns of Connection, and which is a collection of essays. And one of the essays is about the 1960s. And I go into this, how this, these protest movements and this vision of an alternative lifestyle were formulated during the 1960s, 
how they were elaborated later in the 70s and 80s, and how we had various backlashes. So it's not a straightforward change. I've come to see social change as a, what I call the swing of a chaotic pendulum. So a chaotic pendulum is a contraption that you can actually build where the pendulum, they're actually two uh, connected pendula and they have very erratic ways of swinging. And I see these movements uh, uh, in, in that way, you know, backlashes, uh, revolutions, you know, going back and forth. Uh, to me, now the most important result of the 1960s uh, is the creation of an alternative vision and an alternative culture, which matured in the 70s and 80s with feminism, the ecology movement, green politics, and then the creation of a global civil society, which we have now. You know, when, when you look right now at the climate summit in Glasgow, you see that there are the official delegations and then there are a hundred thousand people from civil society, you know, demonstrating, protesting, making their voices heard. That all goes back to the 1960s, where these ideals were formulated for the first time. That's very interesting, and I think you're correct that in, in painting that kind of arc of uh, of how things kind of developed. We talked about your book, first book, uh, just a couple of minutes ago, but I, I want to circle back. What, to you, what is the primary intersection between Eastern mysticism and modern physics? Well, uh, I think the, the essential uh, insight of uh, modern physics, especially quantum physics, as described by Heisenberg in his classic book, is that at the small level of atoms and subatomic particles, the world cannot be described in terms of isolated objects. In fact, all so-called objects, whether we call them atoms or particles or molecules, they dissolve into patterns of connectedness, patterns of relationships. And that is also the insight that many of those Eastern mystics had in meditation that um, uh, there is a, a famous saying that I quote in the book uh, by a, a, a Buddhist uh, teacher who says, uh, when the mind is disturbed, the multiplicity of things appears. When the mind is quieted, the multiplicity of things goes away. So in, in deep meditation, you would experience the environment as an interconnected uh, network of relationships. And that was also true in quantum physics and is also true in our current understanding of the nature of life, because the nature of life is networks. Life organizes itself in networks. And so, of course, it's, it's obvious to everybody today that the understanding of networks is extremely important. We have our social networks, our social media and so on, but we also have ecological networks and we have networks at the level of individual organisms, cellular metabolic networks. So I think the, the, the main change from 
the mechanistic view of the last century and the century before that to a, a systemic and ecological view. The main change is a profound change in metaphors from seeing the world as a machine to understanding it as a network. So that, that I think is the very essence. And in the Tao of physics, I elaborate that and you know, going through the whole of quantum physics and relativity theory. I see. Do you, do you see this, do you think we continue viewing things as a network driven kind of systems approach or do you, you see us kind of drifting back towards a mecha more mechanistic view in the future? You know, like, like, what's the trend look like for you? Or, or, or where do you think things are trending now? Well, uh, I think uh, I can say with, uh, with uh, a great deal of certainty that in the future, we will not trend back to the mechanistic view. Because, and this may surprise you, if we did, there would be no future. You see, we, we are now in a global multifaceted crisis with the climate uh, emergency, with economic inequality, with the COVID pandemic. These are all facets of one and the same crisis that, that ultimately go back to an erroneous perception of the world as a machine. And if we were to continue this perception uh, uh, we would destroy ourselves. We would destroy human civilization. Now, on the positive side, I could say we are not going back because the importance of networks is obvious to everybody now. The world becomes ever more interconnected. So, you know, we are not going to neglect that. We are not going to say, no, everything is separate and, you know, what happens in Southeast Asia or what happens in Australia does not concern me. It concerns everybody because the world is an interconnected whole. That makes sense. That makes sense. It, it seems like it's globalization is, is one of these things where it's a, it, it doesn't go backwards or at least it, it's very difficult for it to go backwards. And if it goes backwards, it seems like it's uh, it's usually temporary. Um, and the question is, you know, uh, who profits from globalization? And so far in economic terms, it has been mainly the corporate world and, and not so much ordinary citizens. As the Occupy movement put it memorably, the 1% have profited and we are the 99%. So, so that is one of the facets of our global crisis, the enormous economic inequality which needs to be addressed and changed. It really is quite impressive how 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 big that that gap has gotten. I, I'm curious, I've got your new book right here. Um, All right. And, and I, I wanted to ask you, you know, why write it? Like, like what brought you to think, uh, you know, I, I've, I, what are the important messages you, you wanted to get out in the world? Well, there's a story behind it. And I, I should tell you, Will, that in my life as a writer, I would never sit down and ask myself, what can I write now? What's my message? You know, what's the most important thing for me to write about? This is not how I work. I, mean, I don't know how other writers work, you know, and of course, there are the fictional writers, which is, again, a totally different universe. Right. What I do is uh, I study. 
I, I studied my whole life and I'm still studying things. And I read books, I have dialogues, I have conversations, I learn things and I make notes. And, you know, for the last 40 years, I've had files of notes, which I continue to this day. And every now and then, and then I also revise my notes and order them. And every now and then I think, well, maybe there's enough there for a book. You know, because the notes have a certain theme that emerges. And then I think I could write a book about that. Well, this particular book is very special because it's a collection of essays from five decades. And there's a story behind it, which I'm happy to tell you. Uh, two years ago, I decided to put all my papers together you know, uh, having reached uh, my 80th birthday, I thought I would uh, put all my papers together and give them to the University of California in Berkeley. There's a special library for archives. And so I put my archive together and it was uh, a lot of work. I had a lot of uh, collections because I don't throw things away easily. So I went through all my collections of papers and articles and books and so on. And I found as I collected and ordered them, there were a lot of essays I had written that never made it into any of my books about things, you know, like review of arts and, you know, things, other things like this essay about the sixties. It's not in any of my books. And so I thought I would like to collect these essays and publish them as a book. And I started with uh, about 50 essays and then narrowed them down to about 30 and combined some into you know, a single essay so as to not be too repetitive. That's, that's how the idea started. And I worked for a year on putting these essays together. And of course, I didn't just slap them together in a book, I wrote a narrative. So uh, the essays are grouped into chapters according to the themes that were foremost in my mind to various periods of my life. And then I have a connecting narrative which gives the historical context and the philosophical context. So you could even not read any of the essays and just read the narrative that's about three or four pages per chapter in the 11 chapters. So about, you know, uh, 40 to 50 pages of narrative, which really tells you the story of my career and the evolution of my thinking over those five decades. I love it. Are there any broad lessons, you know, in putting together this work or, or in looking back over your life so far, you know, you've still got a long ways to go, but uh, that you'd like to impart? You know, are there any big life lessons you found that you think are, are really important that perhaps don't, um, aren't often talked about? Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, I am not a spiritual teacher or, you know, a wise man imparting his wisdom. I'm always have been and still am essentially a scientist. So I deal with concepts and ideas. 
I do write about spirituality. I do write about values, about the arts, about emotions, about all kinds of things. But uh, at the core is, uh, uh, you know, a network of concepts. And uh, what I would say, my main message is that uh, we today, we need a systemic understanding of the world in terms of networks and patterns, because the main problems we face are all interconnected. None of them can be understood in isolation. And so we need to be able to think in terms of networks, patterns, relationships, and context. That I think is my, my central message. So it's something like, you really need to look at the the entire picture if you're going to enact any change. You can't look at the, yes. the micro level, the macro level. That's really right. matters. And we need we need systemic solutions, which means solutions that don't deal with just one individual problem, but always see it in connection with other problems. And and you know, of course, you know, I, I wrote many other books, and and one of my last uh, theoretical books is this, the Systems View of Life, which I co-authored with a friend and colleague, Pierluigi Luisi, and there it, I described the systemic view of life. Uh, so so these two books are really sort of mirror images. One describes the evolution of my thinking in a very personal way, and the other one gives the result, you know, the synthesis of this systems view of life. And in the systems view of life, which is actually a university textbook, we spent 60 pages discussing the most important systemic solutions, and we find that all our problems today have solutions which have been tried out, tested, developed, and what we need today is uh, political will and leadership to move toward a regenerative, sustainable future. I love that. Could you give an example of one of those solutions to one of these really, really yeah, important well, pressing problems? Well, think the, the example, there are many examples, and, and one of my favorites is from agriculture. Uh, if we moved from the current large-scale industrial agriculture, which is highly centralized, mechanized, based on, on chemical fertilizers and pesticides and so on. If we moved from that approach to a sustainable, organic, regenerative system of farming, we would solve at least three major problems that we have today globally. The first is energy dependence because industrial agriculture has a huge energy input, not only to grow food, but to transport it over thousands of miles, to process it, to store it, refrigerate it, and so on. So that's one energy um, dependence, which is hugely uh, relieved because uh, you know organic farming doesn't have that huge energy input. The second one is that the organically grown food is much healthier than the industrial chemical food. And so it would have a huge impact on public health. We know today that many of our um, principal diseases like uh, uh, diabetes, strokes, heart disease, and so on are a direct consequence of our diet. And thirdly, uh, the, the sustainable agriculture 
would make a significant impact on fighting climate change because an organic soil is uh, a living soil with plenty of carbon. Carbon is the chemical backbone of life. And so the soil, to be precise, the soil bacteria and other microorganisms draw down carbon from the atmosphere and lock it up in chemical substances. So here you have three problems solved. I could also talk about what is now called the Green New Deal, you know, the shift from fossil fuel energy to uh, renewable energy sources with um, simultaneous huge creation of jobs, infrastructure, and so on. That would be another one. But Got it. Both these are, and, and you know, uh, on the positive side, we can say these systemic solutions are intensively discussed today. That's right. They, they really are. What makes you think, uh, you know, I get the sense that, that Europe uh, is much more conscious about environmental issues. It seems to be top of mind. Um, I think of like Greta Thunberg and, and you know, uh, just a, a lot of rhetoric, you know, ride your e-scooter. There's, there's a lot going on in Europe. It, they seem to be very concerned about the environment, much more so than the U.S. Uh, what, what's your sense of why that is? Well, uh, I would say that it's not true for young people because uh, we have the Sunrise Movement here in the U.S., which now is extremely powerful. If you remember just, I don't know, five, ten years ago, uh, less than 10 years ago, this was sort of a fringe movement of a few kids, you know, marching in the streets, doing all kinds of actions. Well, today it's a huge influence. You know, it has a presence in Washington. It has a presence in Glasgow at, at COP26. And, but it is true, what you say is, is true for many middle-aged and older people. And there, I think the corporate influence on politics is stronger in this country than in others, not in all others, but in, in several others. So we have, we have a corruption of politics that is systemic in Washington. And if you notice, nobody talks about corruption. They call Sorry. it campaign finance, right? Right. So we have an electoral system where, uh, you know, people, candidates campaign with television ads and they are very expensive and they are be paid by sponsors in exchange for policies later on that make the rich even richer. So there's an endemic, a systemic corruption, which is never really addressed or until recently, let's say, hasn't been addressed. It is being addressed now. But, uh, you know, with Bernie Sanders and uh, AOC and all these politicians uh, in the progressive wing of, of our uh, government, they do address it. But I think that, that intermeshing of money and politics is not as strong in Europe. It also exists in Europe, but it's not as strong. For instance, in many countries, electoral campaigns are very short, like two months or three months. And, and here, it seems they never end. It's just That's one right. ongoing campaign, right? 
And, and also in Europe, the campaigns are publicly financed. So when people uh, campaign on, on television, they can do so in, in special programs and so on. So it's, it's a different system. That makes sense. I want to go back a little bit and talk about physics. I, I have this question I, I asked all my guests. And, mm. uh, you know, what do physicists understand about physics that everyday people might be surprised by or, or would, it would catch them off guard? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I would be curious what your other guests have, have answered. But I, I have thought about this for a long time. And, and I have a a definite answer. I don't need to reflect. I know it right away. That's great. Say. So uh, the, for me, the most important discovery of 20th century physics, or which is also called modern physics, is the fact that all our models and theories are approximate descriptions of reality. They're all limited and approximate. So scientists never deal with truth and scientists never prove anything. And that is, you see, in the general public says, well, if you want proof, you go to a scientist. But no, that's not how science works. Proof is uh, something taken from logic and from mathematics. There you can have proofs of theorems and so on. Science, physics, and the other sciences work by constructing descriptions of reality, which approximate the observation as closely as possible, and which are improved with successive theories, but never really fit reality completely. So there's never a complete fit. And you might say, well, why not? Well, the big discovery in the 20th century has been or was that natural phenomena are tightly interconnected. So the property of any one phenomenon is linked to the properties of the others with which it is connected. So in order to describe anything with complete accuracy, you would have to know all these infinite connections, which is obviously impossible. So what we do in science is we say, well, everything is connected to everything else, but some connections are more important than others. And in a first try, in a first model or first approximation, I will consider only the most important connections. And this, that's the art, that's where an sort of intuition and art comes into science, in the art of model making, in the art of making theories, which we know are not completely accurate, but we hope they'll be accurate at least, you know, more than, than the model of another team at another university. And so we improve these uh, in, in consecutive steps, and every now we have Every now and then we have scientific revolutions where we have to completely throw away a theory. But, but that to me is the most important result that science has approximate descriptions. And, and so it introduces a certain humility in, in, in scientists. And our great scientists like you know, 
Einstein and Darwin and Heisenberg and, and all these people, or Marie Curie, uh, they have all had this, uh, this humble, you know, uh, attitude uh, toward nature and toward science. That seems very important uh, to being successful in the field. I've got a, almost a meta-level question. Is it your sense that uh, progress in physics has slowed since you've started? Has it accelerated, or is it, do you think it's moving along at about the same pace? Uh, well, my field was uh, high-energy physics, also known as particle physics. And uh, I think progress has slowed significantly. Uh, really? I, I left physics in the 1980s, not because progress has slowed, but because I was interested in so many other things. I started writing books. I shifted from physics to the life sciences, to you know, systems theory, ecology, and so on. But also I found that um, not much new was happening in physics. Now, since then, we have had string theory and the Higgs boson and a lot of exciting discoveries. But again, you know, they have not led to, to real breakthroughs because string theory, which is the most popular theory of, of uh, subatomic particles, is extremely elegant, you know, describing the world as a set of vibrating strings, but it's not a proper theory because it cannot explain the observed parameters. And there's not one theory, there's a, a large number of theories uh, with different features, different dimensions and so on. And there's no way of finding out which one is the best or the most correct one and so on. So it has huge problems. And, and since then, not much has happened. So, so I do feel that at least in that field of high energy physics, you know, progress has slowed down. Very interesting, very interesting. And, and that's also, it's somewhat, um, somewhat disturbing that, you know, how are we, we get technological progress in the future if, if we have slower progress in physics and all these fields. Um, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, you know, in the life sciences, uh, things have happened and things have been very exciting. And that was one of the reasons why I shifted from physics to the life sciences. And, you know, deep philosophical questions like the relationship between mind and matter or the question of free will uh, have found what I consider solutions have been solved in, in theories that uh, are very exciting and, and uh, you know, very convincing. Can you talk about those two? Yeah, well, the um, uh, mind and matter, the, the issue of mind and matter goes back to the 17th century and to before Newton to Descartes. Descartes. René Descartes was this famous philosopher and mathematician who divided the world in two, into two uh, fundamentally different realms, that of mind, which he called the thinking thing, and that of matter, which he called the extended thing. And then ever since Descartes, uh, scientists and philosophers have wondered how this thinking thing, this kind of strange entity is interacting with the body or you know, with matter in general. 
So the big breakthrough has been in the systems view of life has been to recognize that mind is not a thing, but a process. And it is closely connected to the very process of life. Uh, Gregory Bateson, the anthropologist and cyberneticist was one of the uh, people who discovered that. And he was talking about mental process. And Umberto Maturana in Chile, a biologist in Chile, uh, uh, focused on cognition, the process of knowing. And both Bateson and Maturana connected this process very tightly with the very process of life. So that the relationship between mind and matter or between cognition and matter is one between process and structure. So when we talk about life, we have living structures like cells, like tissues, like organisms. And these living structures are living because they're constant, there's constant activity. There are metabolic processes of taking in food, of processing food, of excreting waste, of growing, of developing, of evolution. And these processes are essentially cognitive processes. And that's where mind is hidden in the process of life. So that is a huge uh, and still controversial uh, achievement. But to me, it really solves the question because it says, you know, mind is to metal as processes to structure. Very interesting. I think that's a, that's a good explanation. What about free will? Well, the free will is a, is a little more complicated, but it's it's connected to that. And it is connected to the network structure of life. And that goes back to the same uh, Umberto Maturana in Chile, uh, who with a colleague, Francisco Varela, developed a theory of self-producing, self-generating living networks. And, uh, you know, being good scientists, they coined the Greek term, because when you coin a new term, then you know you have made it in science, everybody will refer to you under this term. So they coined the term autopoiesis. Auto, of course, means self, and poiesis is the same Greek root as in poetry, and it means making. So it's a theory of self-making, and it says that every living system is a network that continually makes itself, that continually regenerates itself. And uh, it uh, interacts with the environment, but and every interaction with the environment triggers structural changes in the system, but the system is self-organizing, which means that it determines how it will change. And ah. so, so now we, we come to the question of free will that when a system acts in some way, it does so in response to the environment and it does so dependent on its structure. Uh, the, the, the structure determines how it responds to the environment. If you, if you just think different organisms have different sensory systems. 
So, you know, a bird may see something that I can't see. We know that dogs can hear frequencies that we can't hear. So for us, these frequencies are just not there. We don't respond to them. So we respond according to our structural makeup, according to our structure. Uh, the structure determines the response. So the response is determined, but it is determined by ourselves and therefore free. So we are both free and determined because we are determined in our action by ourselves. If you tell me what I have to do and you force me to do that, then I'm not free, right? I'm dominated right. by you, I'm not free. But if I listen to you and then decide how to respond, I do this out of my own genetic makeup, physical structure and so on. And it's all determined, but it's determined by me. And that's why I'm free. So Maturana calls this structural determinism. And it sort of solves this paradox by saying, are we free or are we determined? Well, we are both, we are determined and free. Wow, I, I, I've never encountered that before. That, that's, that's uh, complex. Uh, we Very could complex. talk a whole hour about that. Right, it's absolutely. We'll have to have you back on it to, to go deeper into that. It's, it's quite interesting. So, Fritjof, um, you know, you've just finished up this book, uh, which you know I highly recommend. It was quite interesting. What's next? Well, um, what I'm involved in now is mainly teaching, not so much writing, but teaching. Uh, this uh, textbook, which I mentioned before, the Systems View of Life is a textbook for universities, encouraging them to teach this systemic understanding, which is a, a multidisciplinary uh, course. And as you know, probably in our universities, it's very difficult today to have multidisciplinary classes because the whole university structure is not geared that way. So in order to give an example and make a model course I developed an online course on the systems view of life, which is known widely today as Capra course. And I have taught it now for six years. And as you know, when you're online, you are global. So I have an alumni network of over 2000 people in uh, 85 countries around the world on all continents. And that's what I'm doing. I teach two courses a year. They are 12 lectures. 40-hour uh, pre-recorded lectures, and then we have discussion forums, we have Zoom meetings, we have all kinds of things. And it's wonderful because I'm not all my students are young, but many are. So I'm constantly in touch with young people and with activists around the world, and I find this extremely rewarding. I love that. I love that. Well, Fritjof, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find the book? Well, the, the book is uh, published by a publisher called High Road, which uh, is uh, a part of the University of New Mexico Press. And, you know, it should be in all the bookstores and it should should be in various, you know, online booksellers that, that you know. And uh, so it should be widely available. Awesome. I'll put some links in the show notes. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And as you said, let's do it again with these complex questions. Uh, we will. I would Absolutely. Enjoy that. Okay. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.